I'm Vivian Howard, and this is the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. One of the highlights of the podcast for me so far was having Chef Vivian Howard of A Chef's Life and of her new show, Somewhere South, as a guest back in the spring. When the opportunity to have Chef Howard on again presented itself, I certainly wasn't going to pass it up. Chef Vivian Howard was the first woman to win a Peabody Award for a cooking show since Julia Child, and she was a semifinalist for the James Beard Award's Best Chef Southeast five consecutive times. In this episode, Vivian and I discussed the response to her pickle episode of Somewhere South, in which she visited Kentucky. Also, when I spoke with Vivian in the spring, the pandemic lockdowns were just beginning. She and I discussed the impact on her own restaurants, and what changes she believes will be here to stay. Plus, we discuss her new cookbook, This Will Make It Taste Good, out just in time for holiday gift buying, as well as holiday cooking. This new cookbook is a radical departure from her first cookbook, Deep Run Roots. Please take a moment to subscribe to the eKentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. Now join me as I talk with Chef Vivian Howard. Chef Vivian Howard, welcome back to the Eat Kentucky podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, I appreciate you being on. It's, uh, it's been a few months since we talked. When, when last we spoke, you were previewing Somewhere South and the episode uh, where you came to Kentucky and, and the shutdowns were just starting to happen. Uh, that was back in March, I guess. So a lot has gone has gone on since then. Yes, a lot and a little. Yeah. Oh, right, that's right. Very, very good point. Very good point. Uh, how was the reception to somewhere south? Particularly, of course, for for us, uh, we're we're interested in if anybody commented on the the Kentucky episode and how the response was to that, but the the show in general too. Um, well, you know, the show was received just so warmly and I think it has a lot to do with the time that you know it aired uh, based on you know it was relatively the beginning of the lockdown and it was really um, a a show that's about community and food so when people watched it um, I got so many uh, emails and messages about how connected they felt to other people and so I I think that was really um, very special and I've gotten so much feedback on the pickle episode, which was um, the one that we shot in Kentucky. And just last weekend, I was doing a, a drive-through book event, and um, a woman came up and said she was from basically the same holler in Kentucky, and it, the show brought her to tears. And oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and so um, you know, we we had a conversation about how beautiful the sun coming over the mountains into the holler 
was that was one of the you know memories that I'll always um, hold from shooting the whole season of Somewhere South. It it was it really is a beautifully shot uh, series, and and it captures the the place and the landscape so well. I think. Yes, yes, and you know um, from from shooting a chef's life from season one there to the cinematography in somewhere South, you know, I think you, if you watch them all, you can see what great strides our team has made. And basically we've had the same core um, cinematographers and producers and editors and director from the beginning of a chef's life. And so, um, you know, we added drone footage, which I was skeptical of uh, in the beginning, basically because I didn't know anything thing about it uh but i think especially in a place like kentucky with with the mountains and and the beautiful sky um and just the um sometimes stark beauty of it like being able to get above the the mountains and see it from that perspective i think adds some majesty that we were missing before sure well we we of course want to get you back to kentucky but obviously no one can go anywhere right now because because of the way things are. Do, is there a future for somewhere south right now, or is it just just um, in limbo? Um, I hope so. You know, so much of um, what we do on PBS is is related to being able to fundraise for that for for that season, and also being able to to travel. And um, so, you know, we we have put it on hold for now just because i mean basically the the world demanded it no, sure absolutely no nobody can nobody can uh, can get around the realities that we're we're facing at the moment and that of course spills over into into restaurants too because i know you had two restaurants that were being planned uh for opening and uh, i understand that one of the restaurants uh in there in Kinston you had to you had to close. So what, what do the restaurants look like for you and, and how have you adjusted to, to the pandemic? Um, well, it's really been a time, uh, you know, I had two restaurants in Kinston and that, that had posed a challenge for us for some time, just um, the resources that a small town pr- can provide for two restaurants such as ours was really um, challenging. So I decided that we would not reopen the boiler room um, for a number of like practical reasons in an effort to make Chef and the Farmer um, better and the best that it can be. And um, our restaurant in Wilmington, Benny's Big Time, we've been doing, I've never been so grateful for pizza, let me tell you. We've been doing, <laughs> it's, it's a pizzeria and we started doing takeout um, in June and you know, the silver lining of, of Benny's and the pandemic is that before the pandemic, you know, we didn't have much of a takeout business. Like people didn't look to us for takeout pizza. And now, you know, we've reopened the dining room um, four nights a week and takeout is is a huge part of what we continue to do. So that's great. Um, and I opened Handy and Hot. It's a biscuit, hand pie, coffee shop um, in downtown Charleston in August. And we're getting ready to open Lenore, which is the proper sit-down restaurant attached to it um, in December. So I have had a very, very, very busy um, pandemic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that those 
the, the Charleston restaurants are still on the table, so to speak, and that, that things are, are continuing with those. But I, I know all the restaurants have had to adapt in, and in ways that they haven't really imagined. Uh, what, what do you think that all of this means for restaurants going forward in the, in the way that they do business and will we'll have to do business. So, I mean, hopefully we'll be getting somewhat back to normal as time goes on, but I feel like uh, with the way restaurants have had to adapt, that there will be adaptations that they'll embrace and continue or be forced to. Absolutely. Um, as a restaurateur, I've learned so much. And I think that um, so many of my peers share uh, my perspective that we have really learned through this, that we have got to d- diversify our revenue streams. You know, if you're a restaurant like Chef and the Farmer uh, that only can really feed the people that are sitting in its seats, then we our resources are really limited. And so, you know, I think you're going to see a lot more restaurants um, selling meal kits and, and focusing, you know, some energy on that because, you know, while I think many restaurants will return to business as usual at some point, um, this has given us insight into, you know, how fragile what we have been doing is. Um, you know, and for me, I we did a lot of um, online shipping of food during uh, during the pandemic through our online bake shop, Handy and Hot. And so, you know, that's something that is going to become a bigger part of my business. Um, and I think that you'll see things like that happening with a lot of restaurateurs. I, th- I think obviously not only have restaurants been forced to adapt, but I think the, the mindset of the consumer uh, has changed and what they expect, what they want. Uh, I, think, I think going forward, a lot of people are going to expect you know, curbside pickup, that kind of thing, just to be... Uh, sort of a, a normal part of a lot of restaurants that they they can just drive up and somebody brings them food kind of thing. Absolutely. And I think that we as, you know, consumers and diners have also figured out that, oh, this is this is this has saved me a lot of time cooking dinner. I can pick it up. It's it's less costly than if my whole family went and sat in the restaurant and I don't have any dishes to clean up. So I think that both restaurant tours have realized how valuable um, curbside and drive-throughs and uh, meal kits are, and also as you know, people trying to feed ourselves and our families, we've realized how convenient it is too. So I think it's going to continue, and I hope um, I, I, I hope that it spreads far and wide. So, so right now you're doing shipping from from Handy and Hot, is that right? Can can folks in Kentucky order from there? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the way that Handy and Hot um, has always worked is that it's a a specialty um, kind of pop-up bake shop. So we do things around holidays often. Last last Thanksgiving, we made a thousand um, chocolate pecan chess pies and people, it's kind of like the Hunger Games, people get on there and order them and then they're gone. (laughs) Then we ship them out. Um, And this Thanksgiving, um, and during during, uh, the pandemic, we did these quarantine kits, which were um, the flavor heroes from my book that just came out. And people, you know, the, the, that whole premise is these are, these are products that can help you put an exciting dinner together really quickly. Um, and so that was a, a big success. And then for Thanksgiving this year, we're going to do um, 
a super fun riff on the Thanksgiving staple cranberry sauce, which I think uh, people are so conflicted by. Um, right. In my, in my household, we have, um, we have, we have both denominations, uh, which is one is canned and the other is, uh, is freshly made. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the freshly made camp. Uh, so I make cranberry sauce every year because I'm the one who wants it. But, uh, so, so what's the, what's the special, what's the special Vivian Howard insight on cranberry sauce? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of times people pair, um, cranberry with apples, but the apples are, you know, um, they're cooked, um, just kind of fresh, but we've made these apple preserves that are candied and, and hold their texture and, um, that cooked with the, uh, cranberries that prevents me from having to add like, you know, unnecessary sugar because I have sugar in the form of these candied apples. Mm -hmm. And also, um, we're going to have a little spice pecan action in there as well. Oh, I, I won't complain about that at all. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely pro cranberry, but you, but you really don't get it very much. Um, we, we've kind of confined it to holiday eating for some reason, but so you do have a new cookbook, and uh, I, I've had a chance to, to look through it, and there's a lot there. I mean, it's, this is not, a, this is not a, a small volume at all. No, no, and it's a really out-of-the-box kind of way to write a cookbook, um, everything about it. Um, no, I, I agree. It's, it's certainly different than any cookbook I've looked at before. So you're, you're your previous cookbook, I guess we can kind of label it more of a, might say a heritage cookbook. It's, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful volume and it's, there are lots of, there's lots of narrative in it. And you sort of explore a lot of the same, the same tastes that you have surrounding you there in North Carolina. Yes. I've always looked at Deep Run Roots as kind of um, a historical document, as you said, that, that, you know, outlines the food of this region and also my experience growing up in this region. And this will make it taste good is so much more um, an expression of uh, who I am and the way that I cook. And I, I think that it's where um, Deep Run Roots was um, heartfelt and sometimes a little melancholy this is really fun and um, and it shows that I don't really take myself all that seriously. <laughs> well, one of the things that struck me is that you, you kind of approach it, um, I guess, from my standpoint, kind of uh, how to hack cooking in a, in a way that you, you provide sort of set building blocks that you can make ahead of time and then you give us recipes to put those building blocks in. Is that my, am I understanding that exactly, right? Exactly. Exactly. So every chapter is about one of these things that I call a flavor hero, um, or building block. And it's a simple recipe that, um, when added to a, a number of ingredients makes like very simple kind of boring food, very exciting. And I started cooking this way at Chef and the Farmer because, you know, we would make um, all these relishes and pickles and preserves um, during the summer and then use them all throughout the year to make, you know, kind of winter food 
you know, bright and beautiful and, you know, um, and something that you were, you know, crazy about eating. And, and then when I stopped working at the restaurant so much, I found myself uh, going to the restaurant and getting these little flavor heroes and bringing them home so I could cook dinner for my family really fast. And everybody was like, wow, that, that's awesome. And so um, I, I previously was trying to write a cookbook that was, you know, just really simple, all, you know, four and five ingredient recipes. And, and at the end of that book, at the table of contents was a chapter that I'd outlined called This Will Make It Taste Good. And it was for all of these flavor heroes that um, I really can't cook without. And so I thought, why not write a book that I want to write? And um, reimagine the way home cooks can move through their kitchen. So, so give us an example, and maybe one of your one of your favorite uh, of the flavor heroes, and kind of tell us what that is and how how we should use it. Okay, so um, one of them is called Little Green Dress, and it's called Little Green Dress because. Um, of that little black dress that goes with everything. This is a green sauce that makes everything better. Um, and I describe it as kind of like a chimichurri and a salsa verde had a baby in a bed of olives. <laughs> and at the beginning of every chapter, um, there's a list of like no brainer ways to use it. And on that list is like, put it on um, hard boiled eggs, drizzle it on a baked potato with Parmesan cheese, uh, fold it into an omelet. Um, top, you know, pan seared fish with it. And then after that, there are 10, you know, fully fleshed out recipes that are, that use little green dress to make them exciting. And so that's one chapter. Uh, Another chapter uh, is called Community Organizer. And it is a blend of, um, a stewed down blend of tomatoes and peppers and onions and spices, brown sugar and vinegar. And it came to be um, because like several years ago, I got a gift from someone. It was a jar of this stuff and they called it pea helper. And they said, stir this into a pot of peas. My family loves, you know, adding this to peas. And so I, I had no idea what it was, but I did what they said. And I, I was like, oh my God, this is like, you know, kind of reminds me of like a barbecue sauce and a sofrito and, um, and, and ketchup all kind of combined. And it's, so it's called community organizer and I use it to build flavor in bland ingredients. And, and the reason the name is as, as it is, is because it doesn't like jump out and say, I'm here. It, it brings out the best in the, in the ingredients that you cook with it. Um, and that's the other thing you'll notice about the book is that everything has a creative, quirky name that speaks to not only, um, not only what it is, but how to use it. So this is really kind of a, a, an update of the preserving and freezing tradition that we find in the South, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was actually a part um, in the introduction that got cut because of page count where I talked about my time in Kentucky when we were in that garden and we were gleaning the garden. And one of the women said that, you know, she would put all of her jars up in a pantry that was, you know, 
a focal point of her living room kitchen and they were like jewels. And so we had shot some photos for this book and I had all the flavor heroes behind me. And it reminded me of that, that moment. Um, and the fact that th this was a modern interpretation of her, her pantry. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up uh, with my grandparents and parents doing some, you know, not heavy duty canning, but doing some canning and preserving. And they would uh, certainly put away, especially corn and uh, beans and that sort of thing. But this is kind of, uh, this is bringing in flavor, I guess you would say, rather than maybe the, the core ingredient. Yeah, these are like, you know, the closest thing that probably y'all did to what's in this book is a, a chow chow. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not suggesting that you can any of this stuff because some, because it has in many cases, um, a lot of acid or, or, or sweetness, like these things will keep in your fridge for more than a month. Mm -hmm. um, gotcha. And so this is really about streamlining the way you, you cook in your kitchen rather than complicating it and build, bringing in new equipment. Um, you know, I, I explained this book kind of like, you know, how a lot of people are really into meal prep. And on Sundays, they'll make a plan to like roast Brussels sprouts and grilled chicken and cook quinoa and then all week long reheat that stuff. And it's just not, um, it's not as exciting or satisfying as you would want. And so rather than doing that, I recommend like make two of these flavor heroes on Sunday and then, and then you'll see how easy it is to like bake a potato and cover it in community organizer with grated cheddar. And you have a, a delicious, satisfying meal, um, or, or cook pasta and toss it with one of the chapters. Um, it's called red weapons and toss it with that and a little bit of butter. And you've got a satisfying, great meal. So the idea is to spend a, a you know, do your meal prep smarter. Um, so that it can be more enjoyable later on. So you mentioned a moment ago getting things ready uh, with um, with the bakery, with baked goods for the holidays and so forth. What kind of what kind of holiday traditions do you all have, and what recommendations, uh, maybe maybe holiday hacks, do you have for us going into Thanksgiving and Christmas? Um, you know, I think one of my favorite. Uh, holiday or entertaining hacks is just a good old fashioned cheese and charcuterie plate because, you know, my family is the type of family that when they come over, they're like, when are we eating? We don't mingle. We don't like cocktail. We don't, we don't, we, they just want to get straight to the business of eating. And right. I always find that kind of annoying because um, I, I want people to relax and mingle. So if I can have like, a, a really great cheese and charcuterie display sitting out when they get there, then it, it, you know, puts the, them at bay for a while. And the great thing about that is that, you know, cheese gets better at room temperature as does charcuterie. So nothing's suffering by sitting out. Mm -hmm. Right. Do you, do you all have a uh, special, uh, Howard family holiday traditions that you that you enjoy that you're sharing with your own kids? Um, yeah, you know, I would say the 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 most um, the holiday tradition that shines the brightest for us is Christmas morning. We always eat um, sausage biscuits with grape jelly and mustard. And my dad gets up 
before sunrise and and grills the sausage and my mom makes biscuits and my sister makes biscuits and I make biscuits and we all convene at um, one of the houses in Howardville and eat sausage biscuits and eat drink orange juice. Uh, mm-hmm. I've, we've been doing that um, since as long as I can remember. Are you all a Christmas Eve uh, present opening family or a Christmas morning uh, opening family? We're a Christmas Eve celebrating family. Um, and we do a little gift exchange, like a funny thing that we do Christmas Eve. But Christmas morning is when we open presents. I mean, I still have kind of young children. And for them, Christmas there's nothing like Christmas morning. Absolutely. I agree completely. So the new cookbook is This Will Make It Taste Good. And I suppose it can, uh, can be purchased wherever fine cookbooks are sold. Yes, it can. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Vivian Howard, thank you very much uh, for sitting down with me and talking. And I'm glad that uh, we're, that, that you're, that you're thriving on the other side, at least somewhat on the other side of, uh, of the pandemic and that you've got your, your new restaurants uh, on the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You can find links to Chef Vivian Howard's website and relevant social media in show notes. A special thank you to Luciana Salome and Andrea Weigel for making the interview possible. Please hit the subscribe button to the Eat Kentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes. And please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Cornett. Thank you.